Welcome to Sharkpedia, where your hosts, Megan and Amani, a couple of shark researchers that want to bring the science to you. We're creating a space to learn all things sharks and their relatives, answer your questions, and learn from the legends in the field. Get ready to jump in. Let's dive deep into the world of sharks. Welcome back, Sharkies, to Sharkpedia. We are so excited for this episode. We have Dr. David Schiffman here with us to talk about one of his papers. David, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm excited to uh, share with you today some of my work on recreational shark fishing in Florida and policy change. This is an example of some of the stuff that I work on as an interdisciplinary shark conservation biologist, which means I don't just study uh, the sharks. I study the human side, and I study the policy side, and also what science has to do in order to be useful for policy. And I wear a lot of hats from an affiliation standpoint. Uh, that, that would take up half the podcast these days, working five part-time jobs. But I'm an interdisciplinary shark conservation biologist, and uh, folks can find me on social media at Why Sharks Matter. Yeah. If you're on Twitter, it's kind of hard to not know who Dr. Schiffman is, especially if you follow basically anything shark. But yeah, you're really involved in a lot of conservation, and that's why we really wanted to have you on today, is give our listeners a foundation of what shark conservation even is and why we should even care. And of course, your handle is Why Sharks Matter. So it kind of says it all. Like We're here to talk about exactly why sharks matter. So yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Happy to be here. And as Dr. Schiffman said, we're going to be talking about one of his articles today about talking about Florida recreational fishing. So today we're reviewing his article titled Recreational Shark Fishing in Florida, How Research and Strategic Science Communication Help to Change Policy. And I have to say, as I was reading this article, I had a really hard time not highlighting the entire article because truly every... Every paragraph was something super useful. Yeah, it was a very enjoyable article to read, especially when you do not have a background um, in what the whole article talks about. That's always nice to hear. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So I'll start us off with a quick summary of the article if you didn't have a chance to read it. And then we're going to break it down and talk about why this article matters so much to shark scientists and to sharks in general. So this paper provides a really great template for scientists and specifically encourages early career scientists that with proper scientific research and engagement of stakeholders, positive and significant policy change can be made to improve the conservation of shark species. While commercial fishing remains the biggest threat to sharks, local angler fishing techniques were posing a direct threat to hammerhead sharks, specifically scalloped hammerhead sharks which are listed as critically endangered by the IUCN Red List. Dr. Schiffman successfully served as one of the strong and knowledgeable voices that contributed to suggestions with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, and they enacted new rules to land-based shark fishing in Florida, which incorporated several of the suggestions that Dr. Schiffman suggested in this article that we'll kind of talk about today. So before we dive too deep into all the methods and how that all started, Dr. Schiffman, could you kind of break down what is the IUCN Red List and what does it mean to be critically endangered? What is that? What significance does that hold? Sure. 
so the IUCN Red List is an international group of scientific experts. And their job is to summarize and find all the best available science on a particular species and use replicable scientific methods that anyone with access to the same data would come to the same conclusion and determine how relatively threatened different species are. Uh, and if anyone, this is something that there's a lot of confusion about, uh, but anyone can read their methods of how they use it. It's not just guesswork. It's not just people's opinion. It's an internationally established scientific standard. And anyone can get trained in how to do it. There is a free online training course. You can be a certified IUCN Red List assessor. It took me about a week of doing it over lunch breaks. And uh, that's available at conservationtraining.org. But when the, the, they um, determine the status of a species, and you may hear an endangered species, a critically endangered species, a threatened species, these things mean different things in IUCN Red List context that they mean, then they mean under US law, which causes a lot of confusion. So the word, if you hear, hear people talking about threatened or endangered species in general, often what they're talking about is under US law, they're listed as threatened or endangered um, under the US Endangered Species Act. That does not necessarily mean the exact same thing that the IUCN Red List assessment of endangered means. The IUCN Red List is just analyzing the science um, and has different standards than what happens under US law. It also means that something can be endangered or critically endangered according to the IUCN Red List and not necessarily have automatic protections, which is where this comes into play. If something is assessed as endangered or threatened under the US Endangered Species Act, that triggers a legal process, whereas uh, the, a group of international scientific experts saying this species is, is endangered does not automatically trigger legal yeah, I think that's something that I've actually been really learning a lot about recently is as a PhD student, that's obviously something that I'm looking into. And so what do you have to do or what does policymakers have to do to really incorporate IUCN Red List or do they even pay attention to that or is it completely separate? It is not inherently tied to a policy process, though of some policymakers in some places consider it. Uh, I'll tell you that a lot of folks in, in NOAA uh, that which is the U.S. federal agency that deals with ocean issues, including endangered species and fishing and things like that, are not always especially big fans of the IUCN Red List process. And if you go back through my old social media posts talking about the process that eventually led to this paper that we're discussing today, whenever I talk about hammerheads as an IUCN Red List endangered species, uh, you'll have some of my uh, friends from NOAA saying, like, you have to be careful that you don't call it a real endangered species. They're, they're different terms, but it's not that one's a real and one isn't. So there are there is also a, a longstanding policy background discussion about whether or not it's appropriate to use an endangered species framework like the Red List for species that are commercially harvested. We're not, we're not talking about uh, elephants, which are sometimes poached for ivory. We're talking about there are significant commercial fisheries for species like hammerheads. Um, so that's that's the that's the background here, uh, and that's why you may see some people uh, some people sniping at me when I talk about hammerheads as a red list endangered. Yeah, absolutely, and I think I even witnessed some of that on Twitter not so long ago, seeing some yep. some sports anglers <laughs> fishing hammerheads, and I saw you get really involved. And I think that's something that you really reiterate multiple times throughout this article is how important social media can actually be to engage the general public. 
And I have only recently really witnessed and seen how important that can actually be. And so do you find that social media can actually help you get involved with policymakers? I will tell you that I have probably been more successful at using social media to engage with policymakers than most people. Uh, so I don't necessarily recommend it as a starting point, especially for someone who's just starting off on social media. But I am in direct message chains with several US senators and several fairly high level people at NOAA and gov government agencies. That's not typical, but it can be very useful. What, it's real, what social media is incredibly powerful at is spreading a message uh, and you know, spreading a message via talking to journalists, via talking to celebrities who have large followings of people who care about the environment, uh, or just yourself if you build up a large audience yourself. Uh, Twitter in particular is the best tool ever created by humans in the history of the world for interacting with journalists. Uh, something like 15% of the American adult public has a Twitter account. 100% of science and journalists, science and environment journalists in the United States have a Twitter account and they actively use it a lot for identifying story tips and identifying experts, expert sources. So by leveraging this, you can both be a better informed citizen by knowing what's going on in the thought processes of journalists and not just reading their eventual work, but also let, to amplify your own impact, your own impact massively. So for example, I'm, I'm one of the most followed scientists in the world on Twitter, and which means that a given one of my random rants about I, I, uh, a new dinner recipe I tried that didn't go as planned is seen, can reasonably be expected to be seen by more people than went to my high school. Yeah. And I had a big high school. But that's also, you know, 0.0001% of a small newspaper's audience. So there's social media is not going to replace traditional media, but it can amplify messages and, and connect you to other networks. In yeah, that's great. I think we'll keep kind of touching back on that as we go through, because that's something that you kind of keep touching back on throughout this article. Sure. But before we dive too deep into exactly what you did in this article, one of the things you start off with saying is that there's a lot of background, a long history, almost a decade of history of what was going on with hammerhead shark fisheries in Florida. And you do provide some supplementary, some supplementary material so that people can kind of see that entire 10-year process. But for our listeners, could you kind of give us some background information on, on what, what's the history in Florida that led you to wanting to research this? Sure. Uh, so this is an unusually structured paper in that the main paper is like a page and a half, and the, there's 100 pages of supplementary materials. But I promise the editor of the journal told me to do it this way. Uh, I was surprised at the time, too, but people that, but that is, if you want to learn a lot about the entire history of this whole movement, check out the supplementary materials, which include a, a detailed timeline of everything that happened, every newspaper article I was ever quoted in about this process, every blog post I wrote, professional society letters of support, things like that. But generally, uh, Florida is the recreational fishing capital of the world, and also the recreational shark fishing capital of, of the world. And there have always been people that like fishing for hammerheads a lot, and because of their what anglers call their bite. Why is it fun to fish? Because you have to, it's physically strenuous, it's challenging. Uh, the, the hammerheads have a really, really, really strong fight because they're putting e literally every drop of energy they have into, into the fight, which means they die. The goal of catch and release fishing 
is for the animal to live. And hammerheads are not good targets for catch and release fishing because even when you release them, they die. Uh, they are some of the most physiologically fragile fish that have ever been measured. And there's a lot of reasons for that, that at least to me are not that interesting. Uh, but it has to do with the, the physiology of how they, how they breathe and, and uh, their muscle, muscle mass and things like that. But what it means is if you're, you're reeling in a hammerhead and you're fighting it for more than like, I think the number that my colleague, Dr. Austin Gallagher found was like 40 minutes or so. If you're fighting a hammerhead for more than 40 minutes or so, it's probably gonna die even if you release it. And then you talk, then you talk to some of these anglers and they say, oh, we hear that hammerheads are really fragile and we have to be really careful. So we try to limit our fight to about two hours. Mm. And you, you're, you're, you're trying, and I don't want to discourage that. And you're, you're clearly modifying your behavior in response to new information. And I don't want to discourage that, but you're not doing it right. Yeah, I, could, I can see that getting heated really fast. Yes. Um, the, the other aspect of this uh, that I, I'm not sure what sort of fishing gear uh, you use to catch uh, those seven gills, Megan. But I know Amani has used the, the hand lines, uh, the Cuban reel. You can reel in a, a hammerhead in about five minutes with that. It's the same thing that'll take two hours with um, a long line or, or, with a, right. or with the heavy duty rod and reel that they use. But it's, it's not that it's impossible to reel in a, a shark quickly. It's that doing it is hard and not as fun as using the rod and reel that these anglers so I have seen uh, in interns in the lab that I used to be in that are you know, five foot nothing and 100 pounds soaking wet that can reel in a, a large hammerhead shark in five minutes using different gear that's designed to minimize uh, fight time. So these yeah. animals became protected in Florida uh, from commercial fishing as well as intentional recreational fishing uh, about the year before I started my PhD. And the lab that I joined, um, their, their data was helpful in helping to change those rules. But we noticed that the rules weren't really being enforced, or at the very least, the spirit of them wasn't. And in some cases, the letter of the law wasn't. And this really came to a head when some recreational shark angler guy came onto the University of Miami Marine Lab campus, fished from the beach, reeled in a big hammerhead shark right on the beach, 100 yards from where my office used to be, and it died. And if, hmm. if you're doing this literally visible from the window of the, of the lab that was involved in changing this law, I wondered, maybe this is happening other places that are not as, as well observed. Yeah, absolutely. So you get this problem with these, many of these anglers really are, honest to God, trying to minimize fight time. But the current methods that are commonly used do not accomplish that goal. So would you say that there is a significant, uh, I guess, downside to the policymaking in that it does not always take into account the anglers themselves and that a lot of policies will be created without thinking about how you can get them involved correctly, how you can benefit them, but also benefit the species that you're trying to get involved. Yeah, couldn't say it better myself. It's, it's uh, vital to include uh, stakeholders in natural resources decision making. Uh, people, especially when you're talking about something like fishing from a beach when Florida is a seventh of the coastline of the continental United States and, uh, mo and most of it is beach and you, there's not people patrolling all of it. So people need to understand the, the rules. People need to believe in the rules. People need to want to follow the rules. And they are study after study, system after system all over the world uh, shows that people are more willing to accept the policy process 
if they're involved in uh, in in setting it up. If people are more willing to or or uh, they're more willing to listen to decisions made at a table if they have the seat a seat at the table right. where it's discussed, which doesn't mean you give them everything they want, but it means you honest to God earnestly listen and you let people air their grievances and share their concerns. And sometimes they, it's not even a matter of them getting what they want. It's that, that, it's that people feel heard. Yeah. It matters. Absolutely. And in this paper, you specifically say that you did not think that you were completely qualified to do something like this. And so you went and talked to nonprofits, figured out what recreational fishermen were doing, what would be beneficial to them. Um, you kind of put yourself in the shoes of all of the different people that were involved in making this policy and then put it into a paper, mm -hmm. which I think was probably my favorite part of reading this article was actually reading about how you addressed the downfall to what you were trying to do. Um, and then make up for where you lacked skills in the ability to create a policy that would be beneficial to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a tweet that went pretty viral a couple of weeks ago that was talking, I, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something like, am I the best scientist in the world? No, of course not. Am I the best writer in the world? No, of course not. Am I the best teacher in the world? No, there's plenty of people who are better teachers than me. Am I the best person at explaining, uh, am I, Am I the best person at explaining science on social media in the world? No, there are plenty of people who are better than me. But is there anyone better at doing all of those than me? Yeah, also, of course, there's lots of people. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the, the point here is that uh, you, can, you can relatively easily, especially for emerging fields, you can become one of the world's leading experts fairly quickly, especially if it's a graduate school research project. That I, one thing that I really, graduate school has a lot of challenges. I don't need to tell you two that. Right. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but uh, one thing that's really amazing about it is you get a lot of time to just think. Yeah. You get a lot of time to just learn a new thing, and you don't get that later in your life as much later in your career. You get a lot of opportunity to say, you know what, that thing that I said I was going to do, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do this different thing. And the first step of that is just reading papers for three months and just talking to other experts for three months. Right. And. I was really fortunate that I was given the freedom to do that during my PhD program. Uh, the impetus behind what you're describing here is I recognized that there was a problem happening with recreational shark fishing in Florida. And I figured, you know, there are groups that work on shark conservation issues. There are, are expert environmental advocates. Uh, there are expert conservation scientists. I'm just a grad student. I'll just maybe flag this and let people know, hey, this is happening if you want to do something about it. And you know what I found is that there wasn't really anyone working on this. Yeah. Uh, I, in fact, had people um, who were pretty senior and people that I owned books by when I was a kid tell me, like, hey, why are you wasting your time on recreational shark fishing? Everyone knows commercial shark fishing is the bigger problem. Like, don't even look at it. And I thought, huh, well, that's the attitude. No wonder no one's working on this. Right. And I think that was something that was really encouraging as an early career scientist reading this paper is, is, you know, you're a scientist if you have a question and somebody hasn't answered it yet. And I have been asking a lot of the same questions that actually you were asking about hammerheads. I'm now also asking about, about seven gills because there is an open fishery in San Francisco Bay where they aggregate. Lots of local fishers are very invested in these seven gill sharks. Their livelihoods revolve around them. Many people eat seven gills in the Bay Area. And I think it's important to at least identify that shark uh, fishers are not evil people. They're actually very invested. All of the fishers that I've worked with that 
especially ones that find my tag, often call asking lots of questions because they care about this shark and they say, I see less of them. What's going on and how can I help? So I think that's something that you touched on also is, you know, stakeholders are stakeholders. Let's maybe touch on what that even means, right? They they care mm-hmm. about this species and they're invested in it just like the scientists are. Yeah, fishermen, I, I mean, for scientists, we care about, we like the species. We appreciate their value to the ecosystem. Uh, we may even feel a deep emotional attachment to a particular species. Uh, but fishermen, if that species population collapses, they're out of a job. Their life is destroyed in a way that it isn't for us. Uh, so yeah, people care. And it's my, my least favorite argument among self-styled uh, conservation activists on Twitter that are not affiliated with any particular uh, expert nonprofit group is if you only cared about it like I do, you would feel exactly you would feel exactly about this issue like I do. And that's just not how anything works. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So with this project, would you say that you had a lot of support from all the different key stakeholders from anglers um, to the policymakers that you were trying to help? Yeah, so this is an unusual case where the answer is not really. Um, that There are different groups of anglers within the state of Florida uh, that are demographically distinct. Uh, Florida is the recreational fishing capital of the world. There's a ton of fishing interest groups there. And some, one of my earlier projects that was less related to this paper was looking at charter boat fishing in Florida. And that's where you see those signs at the marina, half day of deep sea fishing, uh, 200 bucks or whatever. Those folks were super supportive of everything I was doing. Interesting. Uh, and I, I got talking with them. I got a lot of, oh, it's so great. Someone's looking at this. We've been concerned about declining shark numbers. Uh, I got invitations to come fishing with them for free and to spend the day talking with them. I got invitations uh, to come next time you're in town, uh, to come to, uh, I'll take you out for a beer. I even got invitations, come stay at my house and you can have dinner with my family and hear what they think about all this. The, these recreational shark anglers um, in, in, from Florida beaches, we had to get campus security involved a couple of times. I got death threats from some of these. And that's atypical. My, but often you do get what, you're, what you were mentioning earlier, Megan, with um, very, very curious anglers who really, really want to help and really uh, are supportive. This is an unusual group where it is, they're very uh, they're self-identified as very young, very male uh, and uh, blue collar and low income. So these are, this is uh, the sort of prototypical, um, not just Trump voter, but Trump rally attendee. And there are different reasons why people fish. Some people fish um, for, here here in the DC area where I live now, uh, I have friends who go fishing to get away from the city for a day and just be in nature and they don't even really care if they catch anything. And I have, I have friends who fish off the pier to maybe catch dinner for their family. And that's not what's happening here. These are people who are, are fishing for the thrill and challenge of excitement of, of catching big game. Right. We're talking about the difference between going deer hunting in the woods with your family on the weekend versus traveling halfway around the world to hunt the last rhino. Uh, and it's a very different mindset very different things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in the paper, you kind of discussed that this is very rough handling. So let's just touch base on what does that actually mean? Rough handling of that shark? What does that look like? Yeah, like you said, there's some pure fishers or some land based fishing. Yeah, so sharks are tough, right? Everyone knows that a shark is a big, strong, powerful animal. 
but they're also not meant to be out of the water for very long. Uh, they're really, really, really well adapted for a particular environment. But with some of these anglers, uh, where if they're fishing from a fishing pier, some of, your, some of you may have seen these, what we're talking about is they're being dragged out of the water and suspended in the air for several minutes while you're bringing them up to the pier. And then they're dragged over wood or concrete. Meanwhile, they can't breathe and their internal organs lack the buoyant support of water. Uh, this, it's almost worse when you're doing this from the beach where in addition to being not able to breathe and lacking the buoyant support of water, you're being dragged over sand, which is very, very abrasive and very, very small. As Anakin Skywalker said, it gets everywhere. Yes, it does. <laughs> and if that gets in their gills, that's really sensitive tissue. And that it's not quite the same because of how gills work versus how lungs work. But imagine, um, so imagine you got tackled one day and you're never able to take a full breath of air again for the rest of your life. That's what we're talking about here. So there's, in addition to animals just straight up dying from, from rough handling like this, some have what are called sublethal effects, which means they're still alive, but they can't, they're like, they can't quite do the things they used to do anymore, including fulfill their important ecological roles, including reproduce, including migrate. Yeah, this, we're, the, the pictures uh, that are in um, a larger paper related to this one show bleeding abrasions from the skin and the gills, uh, they show if you've ever worked with a had the privilege to see a large hammerhead in uh, up close, it it takes uh, it used to take five of my undergraduate interns to hold one remotely still, and you see pictures of like a guy holding one with one hand, and it's just a straight line like that's not in a live hammerhead. Yeah, uh, it's hard to it's hard to tell from a still image unless you know what you're what you're looking at. Right, but um, a healthy hammerhead takes five college students to hold remotely still enough to even measure it. And this guy's holding one with one hand and it, it's not moving. Right. So it's important to know when we're fishing, what kind of species can respond really okay to some sports fishing, not necessarily being dragged on the beach, but some are a little bit more tolerant, whereas this species, you were interested in it because it was so sensitive, right? So any sort of mm -hmm. handling like this is going to be very detrimental to that species. So. Yeah. How did you, one of the things that you mentioned in this article is that, again, you kind of noticed that nobody was really looking at this kind of angle, and you also identified gaps in knowledge about this species. Can you kind of expand and explain how did you identify those gaps in knowledge for this species, and how did you even begin to start talking to management authorities, especially as a graduate student or postdoc, which is pretty early career? Yeah. So I'll tell you that management people love it when people talk to them. They are not used to it, <laughs> and they love it. And they they every single uh, fisheries management person I know has a story of how a scientist came to them at the end of a five-year project and said, we have these results, which we think will be useful to you. And they say, man, I wish you'd talked to me before you started this project, because we would have told you to do it slightly differently. Yeah. Yeah, you've told me that before, <laughs> giving me advice to talk to people. It's important to get all the angles. <laughs> yeah. So people love it. Like people, they appreciate having their expertise sought. So many scientists, um, especially in shark world, but a, a growing number of early career ecologists across everything, but it really is higher in shark world. It's, I've, I've actually measured that surveying shark researchers. But I really want, we're not just doing science because sharks are cool. We're not just doing science to answer unknowns about the natural world. It's because we love these animals and we're concerned about their declining conservation status. And we want to put 
our skills to good use in helping. And scientists don't know what that means. Uh, there are a lot of people, for a lot of academics, uh, they believe that you you do you you ask your question, you get you do your methods, you get your results, you write up what you think it means, you publish your paper, then that project is done. Uh, if your goal is influencing policy change, that's not done. Publishing the paper is the first step. Um, if no one ever hears about your paper, then what's the point in having done it? Scientific papers tend to be um, not especially understandable by people who don't have advanced degrees. The whole point of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know uh, right, right now Amani is reading a lot of technical papers for a project we're working on, and some of them are pretty difficult to read. Oh, yeah. Like multiple times, got to read those. <laughs> like some of them, I, there are times when I don't know what things mean. Right. There's an increasing recognition that the problem there is not that we're dumb, but that scientific writing is just not useful for a lot of goals. Right. So that, that's part of why I had long been involved in social media outreach and translating science for the non-expert public and writing for blog posts and writing for um, mainstream media outlets uh, and things like this. And this, what the, the first paper that I, or the first news article, uh, or one of the first news articles that I was ever paid to write from a popular press outlet is included in the supplementary materials here or mentioned in it. Uh, and it's about how Rosie O'Donnell uh, illegally killed an endangered hammerhead shark. So my first celebrity Twitter beef is immortalized in the academic literature now. <laughs> uh, it's important to not only do the science, the science is an important step. I'm not saying skip that part. I'm saying don't think of it as the end. Right. That if your goal is doing science that changes policy, doing the science is the first step. Right. And it's, you, you have to do that part but you don't stop that. Yeah, you have to make science accessible for sure because yes. if people can't read the important data that you're right. putting out, then is it actually helpful to anyone? Um, and I guess, you know, I would say definitely for social media, for me, that's one of the things that I love about it is that it is a platform that allows you to make important research accessible to a wide variety of people. And that's something that I see you do all the time, Dr. Schiffman, is you will post something um, that would be like very hard to read and understand, but you kind of bring it down to a level where we even as scientists can understand it. And then people who aren't scientists can understand it even further. I have had a lot of pushback from that approach from senior scientists. I summarized uh, someone's really good um, uh, taxonomy paper of re redistributing uh, some genus of, of freshwater fish as something like new species just dropped. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And the person involved was like, how dare you mock our work? I'm like, I'm not. I think it's super cool. And I'm explaining it in a way that other people will understand. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a critical part of this that I, I teach professional development training workshops in for or mostly early career academics who wish to become better at talking about science to non-scientists. And one of the things I really stress is that we're not talking about a difference in content, we're talking about a difference in tone a lot of times. Right. Uh, that you don't underestimate, your, the, my rule is never underestimate your audience's intelligence, always underestimate their vocabulary. Yeah. So as scientists, we implicitly, or sometimes explicitly, I had one teacher who explicitly said this, uh, we're implicitly taught that the more 17 syllable words you can fit in a sentence, the smarter you are. And, that doesn't work when you're trying to talk to someone who's not, a, even someone who's a PhD in a closely related field, but not your exact field. They don't know what the hell you're talking about. 
So being able to translate stuff uh, into a way that's not only accessible, but made interesting and relevant is a, a really useful skill. Right. And, um, I've actually had some fishermen, not these shark fishermen that were threatening to kill me and my family, but some other fishermen that I've worked with on other projects uh, tell me, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've talked with a lot of scientists and you're the first one who's ever made me understand it and made me think that you don't think I'm stupid because I didn't understand it at first. And that's, it's not that I'm especially amazing at this. It's that a lot of people aren't trying. Right. I, uh, I agree. And I think inherently it's a learned skill. Like you're saying to communicate science is a learned skill. Many scientists don't necessarily have that skill. It's a muscle that you have to build on and learn and exercise and practice. And it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. So it's great that you're creating these workshops and, and there are workshops in general. I just took a, a science communication course as well. That was immensely helpful because you're absolutely right. It is so important to take your science and make it digestible because otherwise, you know, I always say science can't happen in a vacuum. If it's happening in this closed space and it doesn't go anywhere, then then like you said, what's the point? I don't think that you need to make science accessible. I feel like a lot of them sometimes think that it's because people don't find their research interesting. And I don't think it's ever that we don't find it interesting. I think it's that a lot of people just can't understand it from a scientific perspective. And so if they want to learn about it, they have to go through all these extra hoops to try to understand what a phylogenetic tree is. Like if you just say, oh, new species just dropped, like someone understands what that means. But if you walk up to someone and you're like, we just discovered a new species and it fits on a phylogenetic tree right here. They're like, what was that word that you just threw at me? And I don't even know how to spell it, you know? <laughs> and like, they want to know what you're talking about. Your research is interesting to them, but you have to make it accessible for them to actually be able to understand what you're saying. Absolutely. Uh, and that's a, it's a learned skill. Um, one thing that I, I always stress in my workshops is that it is a learnable skill. Anyone can learn it, as with any other skill. There are some people who are naturally going to be slightly better at it or naturally like it more. Uh, but what I never want to hear anyone say is every scientist should be required to do this. Uh, because we all know colleagues who are maybe great researchers or great collaborators, but if they were ever put in front of a microphone on the local news, the townsfolk would be gathering uh, torches and pitchforks. Uh, some people have not, some academics have not especially enlightened views about the general public. And that's not, not only not accurate, but not helpful for our goals. So, uh, the, yeah, so this, you'd mentioned earlier uh, in this discussion about how I had to learn a bunch of different skills to be able to accomplish uh, what, what happened in uh, this, this project and this paper. And those are learnable skills. There are professional development workshops that exist that, you, that students can get. You can, you can have your university hire someone to do a workshop for the Graduate Student Union, your professional society can do it. Um, yeah, so this, it's, this are, these are skills not commonly, not commonly taught in graduate school, but if you wanna do policy relevant research, you, you need to at least have a basic familiar understanding with how they work and you need to either be good at them or know someone who's good at them. Uh, one thing that uh, I didn't stress perhaps enough in this paper is one person does not need to have all these skills, but you need to assemble a team that does. Yeah, absolutely. And you definitely also talk about approaching environmental journalists. Do you have any sort of tips in navigating that process before you reached out to a journalist? You know, obviously, you must have to do some research and make sure it's a reliable person that wants to work with you and not 
skew your words in a way that could be detrimental to the mm-hmm. actual goal that you have in mind. Yeah. So what would you recommend to especially early career scientists that are just kind of navigating this before they start approaching, especially someone like a journalist? Yeah. So first of all, you, sh- you should be as much as possible speaking with the press about your work because they have, they, it, it will, it's only good for you. It's only good for your cause that you believe in. It's only good for the school. Having uh, the, your university employs people whose job it is to talk about how cool you are. And they would love to be able to say, graduate student featured on local news. Uh, and that builds your personal brand. It improves your, uh, it improves your influence. It improves your network. It improves your hireability in some context. So if at all possible, you should be doing it. It should not be the only thing you do. It's very, I turn down 20 media interviews for everyone I do just because of time. But uh, there, there's value in doing this. So what to do, you, step one to, ident- to having good relationships with a network of reliable, professional, good journalists is read a lot. And when you're reading news articles, uh, and you think, wow, this is really great. They've really nailed the nuance here. They've really got the technical detail down in a way that sometimes gets brushed over. Write down who wrote it. And you may notice like, oh, wow. In, in my case, uh, one of the names that popped up over and over and over again was Craig Pittman, who is, uh, was a Tampa Bay Times uh, award-winning environmental journalist. He's written a bunch of great books. Uh, there was another one, David Fleschler, who is an environmental journalist at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Uh, John Platt, who is now the editor of the Revelator News, but was at the time an endangered species journalist for Scientific American. Uh, there were a couple, uh, there, were, there were names that just kept popping up over and over and over again. Like these people do a really good job covering the story. Uh, so, and then I, it's just a matter of reaching out to them, saying, hey, I don't even have a story, and do this before you have a time sensitive story to uh, if, if you want someone to write about your work today, they're probably busy. But building a relationship in general, you can reach out and any journalist worth their salt uh, that had a, a bright, passionate young student reach out to them and say, hey, I am studying something that's in your sort of beat. Um, and I don't have anything to talk with you about today, but I wonder if we, you might have time to just chat so I can introduce myself for 15 minutes and you could add and, and let you know that I'm available for future things. Um, another thing I did was background briefings. I reached out to journalists who were not necessarily so great, but were maybe not bad, but not great. And I said, hey, I've noticed that you cover um, this story. I'm studying this, and I wonder if you might be available for a 20-minute chat for me to just tell you, uh, here's the current state of the science. Here are some issues. Here are some pitfalls to avoid. And I, people in, usually will enthusiastically accept that, even if they're not writing about it anytime on the horizon. Uh, and then people remember you like, when two months later or a year later, they get a story like, oh, who is that kid that called me? Oh, yeah, I'm going to call David. Um, and, and after you do this enough times, you get sort of a word of mouth reputation as I, journalists uh, know that I'm someone who can summarize shark news for them, both in a way that is interesting and engaging and relevant to their audience, but also quickly. Uh, this is the, the thing that academics are worst at when it comes to, to dealing with journalists. When a journalist wants a quote from you, they need it today. Sometimes they need it that morning. Uh, and I actually saw a, a scientific colleague say, oh, I'm so flattered that you're thinking of me to write about this. Uh, I am indeed, of course, the world's leading expert on this topic. But as such, I'm very busy and I have time in three weeks. Uh, so let's, I'll have my assistant give you a call. 
and uh, you know the article is published the next morning without a quote. Right. And then they're mad. And this person tells this story as the media screwed me over. And like, no, they didn't. Reading and then reaching out to people is a short answer to your question. And is it ever too early to reach out? Like, do you need to have a certain amount of data before you reach out to these journalists? Or do you just have to have an understanding, like you said, of what's currently known? Yeah, if it depends what the goal is. Do you want, is your goal, the, talking about your work specifically, Megan, uh, just as an example, is your goal uh, a profile of local graduate students studying this super cool ancient species? Um, they're going to want probably a, a paper to, to pin it on. But if your goal is they're already writing about this, then they're not interviewing scientists when they do. Introduce yourself and say, just so you know, I'm available, I'm media savvy, I am uh, able to answer questions, and I'm, a, I'm an expert on this. Sure. Uh, it can't hurt. Yeah. Uh, the uh, with any of this stuff, with any of this promoting yourself as an expert, there are obviously huge issues uh, with sexism and racism and all, all of that awful stuff. There are things that I can get away with as a white guy that other people can't. And I'd be remiss in not saying that. But uh, there, are, there are ways around it as much as possible. Uh, one, uh, one person who has been really excellent uh, at navigating that minefield uh, and and uh, doing an excellent job of promoting herself as, as an expert on this stuff is Jasmine Graham, uh, who Imani works with at Miss. Definitely. She is great at it. <laughs> Second that. Just, she just does not give a crap about the, the nonsense and just bulldozes right through it. And it's I, I wish I could bottle that energy. Oh, yeah. The, I think I just said to her like a week ago when I saw her that I aspire to have her level of I don't care. I'm just going to tell you like it is because yeah. it is a superpower and it really doesn't bother her. And like for me, it would bother me so much. Like I would be sitting yeah. thinking about this. And for her, she's just like, this is what it is. Take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this is just in a social context we're talking about, but there is other aspects that I think are important to at least acknowledge. Like mm -hmm. Dr. Schiffman, you were talking about getting on a charter boat with fishers yeah. i can't necessarily do that I as wouldn't. a five foot two female i actually have been cornered before and there are things that are actually a bit of a struggle when you're either a minority or a woman that don't necessarily yeah. give you an advantage in the field when you want to do these things so i absolutely want to do the same things and many fishers are very welcoming i have great relationships with some of the local fishers yeah but as such, you know, I, I can't be naive to the fact that if I went by myself on a charter with a lot of these fishers that want to continue fishing this animal that I am researching, um, it's something that, you know, you have to consider as Absolutely. Uh, a smaller human. Yeah. And, and I wish I wish I had an answer for you uh, on that. But at, at the very least, you're not wrong that it's a very real issue. Uh, but yeah, uh, there there are. There are uh, definitely challenges uh, that people face that I just have not had to worry about. And one thing, when we were talking about, uh, or this past summer, uh, just sort of as a scientific community of the role of racism in academia, some of us have been talking about that for a lot longer, but it became a much more public conversation. Uh, the Black Birders Week, some of those stories of people that were just going for a hike in the woods with binoculars and people assumed that they were doing a drug deal or assumed that they were doing some sort of criminal activity. Like I, I can go for a hike in the woods and not have people question my motive. Uh, it's just a lot of, a lot of privilege that's just, it, privilege does not mean that I've never faced challenges, but it means that I don't face challenges 
like that just because of what I look like. And that's, it's, a, it's a real problem. And so much of the scientific community is just starting to wake up to it and some are still dismissing it. We, we had that one high profile science communicator last year uh, who got yelled at for having her uh, black graduate students have to work late uh, at, at night and they got harassed by campus police and thought they were gonna die. Yeah. Uh, and her response to that was, oh, I'll write, a, I'll write them a letter they can carry and not like, you know, sympathy right. or change. And that is not allyship, no. everyone, just so you know. <laughs> right. But but this is allyship. You know, if you can see and identify that you have some advantages, I have seen you advocate for those that don't have those privileges. And even just having you on this podcast and, and being willing to support us and what our goals are, those are things that are so helpful. And, and I'm certainly appreciative of it because we don't always get those things naturally because of how we look or who we are. And and so it is important for people like you that have a high profile and who are generally accepted by the general public and who can get away with saying some things. It is great to have you on here and, and have that allyship and have that support so that we can continue to perpetuate the goals, the, the same goals that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Try to help however I can. I don't always get it right, but uh, I, I, I listen when I get it wrong and apologize. But yeah. This is just something I wish everyone was aware of that there are, especially in these stakeholder engagement situations. Uh, a thing that I was just talking about um, with Catherine McDonald's class, uh, who I know, I, I, know you, I know you know Imani, I'm not sure if you know Megan. Megan does as well. Yeah, she's great. She is great. Uh, but I, I, was, I was talking with her in her uh, science outreach class and, and her students and someone asked, uh, how can you get in with fishermen? And one of the things that I do uh, is exaggerate how incompetent I am on a boat because they think it's endearing. And it does the, the, um, <laughs> the sort of stereotype of an academic is a know-it-all who talks down to you. And if I'm like, oh my God, I'm so dumb. I can't even find a basic knot. Yep. Can you help me? That suddenly I'm in, they, they take me under their wing. But if a woman were to do that, it's like, oh, of course a woman doesn't know how to tie a knot. Why are we letting her on the boat again? Exactly. Yeah, I have the opposite problem. When I show up on a boat, I have to prove that I know how to be there, especially if I'm captaining the boat. <laughs> so before we end, I would like to ask you what your favorite field story is. Um, and it can be relating to literally any field work that you've done, but we are both very curious what your favorite field story is. Ooh. So the, I'll tell you the story of... And when, I, when I, I crafted this story and the way you're about to hear it, it wasn't for something like Story Collider, though I've since submitted it there, but it was for a, a, a workshop I was doing on indigenous views of wildlife management. And we got to spend 10 days up with the Dene people of the Northwest Territories. And that's the first indigenous initiated, indigenous led, indigenous managed uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site in the world. And it was a group of early career conservation scientists from North America that was joining this. And this is a, a, a their wildlife managers you know, go to university. Well, I, I, I can speak, I can speak indigenous wildlife manager, but the members of the community don't necessarily. So we needed to learn how to be ingratiated into, into that community. And it's a big storytelling culture. This is a, a culture that's been in the Northwest Territories for 20,000 years, didn't have a written language until the 1960s. So it's a big storytelling culture. So we got professional narrative training on how to tell stories. And the, I'll tell you that the, the fishermen in this, in this community 
uh, thought that this was the funniest thing they'd ever heard in their life. So I want to tell you, so with that intro out of the way, I want to tell you about the first time I ever took my dad fishing. I'm really excited to see how these two connect with each other. <laughs> right? How do these connect? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't mean the first time my dad took me fishing. I mean the first time I took my dad fishing. My grandfather was a fisherman, but my dad just sort of never got into it. And I have always wanted to study sharks as long as my family can remember. There are pictures of me when I was two years old with shark toys and shark t-shirts. And my parents always supported this, but they were always, I think they always thought I was going to grow out of it. And I sort of never did. <laughs> you don't say. Surprise. <laughs> we all have a similar story. Yes. <laughs> but near the end of my first field season during my master's, uh, when I was working uh, with uh, Brian Fraser and uh, Gorka Sancho, who was Jasmine's undergraduate advisor, uh, he was my master's advisor. I finally, Brian, who ran the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources Shark Survey said, you know what, you've proven yourself. You just said at some point you wanted to take guests out on the boat with us to help out. So if you wanna do that, sure, let's do that. And I invited my dad and it was the first time he had ever gotten to see me be a scientist. It was the first time he'd ever really been fishing with me. And as you may know from putting out long lines, uh, research long lines, there is a thing that you just never do when you're deploying a long line, and that is let go. There is at no, you're doing these hand over hand motion and going over the hooks and all that. A hundred percent of the time, one of your hands should be on the line. And no one really talks about what happens when you don't do that, but it's drilled into you. At no point, even for a second, do you let big, go. Big problems. <laughs> and we are having a pretty good day. We got to catch some sharks. My dad got to take a muscle biopsy from a, from a baby sandbar shark. We were having just a great day. Everything was going awesome. And I was starting to get cocky. And I let go of the main line, the long line. And the next thing I know, there was no pain. Uh, I, it happened, whatever happened, happened so quickly that I didn't even feel it. The next thing I know, I am on my ass being dragged backwards over the side of the boat oh, with a circle hook, a 16-knot circle hook, clean through the meat of my hand. Oh, my gosh. I would have been another two seconds, and I would have been over the ocean being dragged to the bottom, unable to remove. But Brian, who yeah, I don't know if either of you have met, but is normally this super relaxed, chill guy. I bet he moved at ninja superhero speed with this giant-ass knife that I still don't know where it came from and just lopped the, the line. Oh my gosh. That is quick thinking. It was unreal. But I'm now sitting there with this giant hook through my hand and thinking, how did I do this? What's happening? Uh, and we, Brian just said, like, just hold ice on it. We're going to be okay. Um, he, he got all the gear back up. We cut it the, the day short a little early. And the first day my dad ever came to see me as a scientist after 10 years of me saying, no, this isn't safer than law school, he had to take me to the hospital. <laughs> Uh, turns out once we get to the hospital, they don't have a tool in the entire building large enough to cut this circle. The shark hooks that we use are no joke. We're not talking about a little smallmouth bass hook. Big, yeah. Um, so one of the nurses had to go home and borrow uh, industrial bolt cutters from her husband's landscaping business. Oh my gosh. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm hopped up on so many painkillers from all this in the hospital. And every like member of the staff is like, this guy has a giant hook through his hand. You'd have to come see this. And I must have posed for a hundred pictures. Celebrity. With of the staff while I'm sitting here like, <laughs> I can't feel anything. Anyway, I still have the hook in a medical waste jar on my desk. Oh, hey, look at that. Uh, I keep that as a, a reminder to myself that uh, it doesn't matter how many times 
you've done something, uh, you do you do it right every time, or the one time you don't, the, the gear or the sharks will remind you of why why you should. So I've never been injured by a shark, but shark fishing gear hospitalized me. Man, that story did not disappoint. <laughs> For those of you who obviously couldn't see our faces, Megan and I probably just both of our jaws were on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> and we also looked extremely stressed at the same time. Well, yes, because again, those lines are also, those lines are moving so quick, yeah. which I've, yeah, very quickly. So for another person on the deck to think that quickly to grab a knife and have access to that knife right on their hand and cut that line, I mean, that is so lucky. I, I've never seen a human move that fast and I've never seen Brian move like it was it was superhero speed. Oh my goodness. Uh, and he never broke a sweat. He never he's Brian is the epitome of cool under pressure. Yeah. Always um, come no prepared, kidding. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> like, always yeah. come prepared. So that for the we told this story uh, up in up, up in uh, Delaney in the Northwest Territories and for the whole week all these uh, all these Dene elders were coming up to me and just get, get, it's it's that that um, community was the, just the smiliest, laughingest group of humans I've ever met. It was wonderful, but they were hugging me like, "Oh, you're the guy with the hug. That was great." <laughs> I called my cousin down in this other town, and they told everyone at their fishing club, and this is a great story. So everyone, ev every member of the Dene First Nation in Northwest Territories, Canada, think is aware of how much of an idiot I am. <laughs> At least they remember your name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that didn't. So that's something. But but again, like with that's a that's a story that I've told uh, to ingratiate myself with some fishermen because they think it's funny. Like, oh, this know-it-all scientist doesn't even know the basics of gear safety. And there are things that other people couldn't get away. Other people couldn't get away with a story like that and having it be endearing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No but, kidding. Yeah. That's my favorite field story. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. That is a fantastic way to end this episode for sure. <laughs> I I absolutely agree. And so for all of you listeners out there, I highly recommend reading this article. It is such a great playbook of how to incorporate stakeholders and use social media and build that skill set so that you can actually initiate some policy change. And now right before we end this podcast, Dr. Schiffman, mm -hmm. I just want to quickly ask, your Twitter handle is Why Sharks Matter. So can you tell us and our listeners, why do sharks matter and why should we conserve them? Sure. The, sh the short answer is predators help keep the food chain in balance. And when we're talking about the ocean, this is a, this is a food chain that provides food to billions of humans and jobs to tens of millions of humans. And we don't want that food chain to stabilize. Keeping predator populations healthy is good for everyone. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We were so psyched when you said you would. Um, Thanks for having Especially me. because we are very excited about this podcast, not only because we're hoping other people will learn things, but because it's really testing our ability to read scientific papers and come up with our own questions. Yeah, this is a great project for grad students. Yeah, I'm finding it hugely beneficial. Right. I mean, this is us trying to learn how to be better communicators just like you. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for teaching us and, and coming on and sharing your experiences with us. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Sharkies, all so much. And thank you, Dr. Schiffman, for joining us. Swim you later. <laughs>